and we're studying the theanthropic person. That's the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the God-man. Now you say, why teach that at Christmas time? Because one, that's what the scriptures teach. All of those prophecies that you see, Micah 5, 2, Isaiah 9, 6, Isaiah 7, 14, they, both talk, they, they all talk about his deity as well as his birth, his humanity. And so we must recognize who he is. So last week we did discuss the deity of the theanthropic person. And this morning we're going to discuss the humanity of the theanthropic person or the God-man. Now, Charles Ryrie writes, Denials of the humanity of Christ are less common than denials of his deity. Why? Because as long as you do not inject the deity factor into the person of Christ, he is only a man. However fine or exalted and as merely a man, he cannot disturb people with his claims so much as if he is the God-man. However, those who may readily affirm his humanity may not so readily affirm his perfect humanity, that he's sinless. They may acknowledge him as a good man, and in parentheses he writes, how so if he lied when he claimed to be the son of God? Or a great man, and in parentheses he writes, how so if he misled others spiritually, but not as a perfect man? for then they might feel more obligated to listen to him, even though they may not acknowledge him as God. But it is important to understand the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we've been going through this, we, we understand it in the most simplest ways to say that the Lord Jesus Christ is fully God and perfect humanity, fully human, but we would call it perfect humanity in that he is without sin. This is all making him the perfect mediator between a holy God and sinful man, having become a man so that he could die on the cross and being perfect and sinless as a substitute and a sacrifice, he then is the savior that has been born, Emmanuel. We do see in scripture, and we'll talk about this this morning, that we see that it was foretold of the prophecies, not, not only concerning his deity, but obviously his birth and humanity. It's proclaimed in the Old Testament. It's also proclaimed in Matthew and also in Luke. And it gives us the reason for why he came. And when we celebrate Christmas, it is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ that we need to understand especially if we're going to share that gift of eternal life with others. Let me just begin with the word of prayer, and then we'll pick it up in Luke 1. Heavenly Father, as we come before you, we ask you, Lord, of the many times that we're guilty of things, that we're not guilty of just taking this holiday as a holiday. Father, we ought to see it as 
the time that our Savior came and added humanity to his deity for the purpose that he would die on the cross for our sins. Even at his birth, he was called Savior and Lord. Father, as we celebrate tomorrow, it's around family and good times and all. Father, that is precious. But maybe some point in there, we will understand and take a moment for who it is that we worship and celebrate his birth. Father, teach us this morning and we'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, just quickly, not to re-preach last week's sermon, but just to understand a few things. Where do we get the idea of the God-man? What, what does that mean? He's both God and man. One writes, at a point in time, the eternal Son of God added humanity to himself. Simultaneously becoming God and man, creator and creature, the unique theanthropic person. We mentioned last week that this is what the Bible portrays of the Lord Jesus Christ in its fullness. It's not like mythology where you have someone like Hercules or, or all of those mythological characters that are half God, half man. This is the absolute truth. We, full, we find out that he's fully God, never ceased being God, and perfect humanity. In fact, we have one person, the Lord Jesus Christ, but now with two natures, one divine and one human. Yep, it's a mystery. It's pretty hard to wrap your mind around it, but it's true because the Bible says it's true. And we don't always have to understand everything fully, do we? We have finite minds, and that's just one more proof of it. We did talk about why is this is so important. Is it, is it that these theologians had nothing else to do except come up with these big words? Oh, no. In the early church, there were false teachings about the person of Christ down through history. And the church had to refute them with the biblical understanding. And that's why we come up with, or they came up with the term, the theanthropic person. We, you remember we talked about one group, the asceticism. They said he was God, but he wasn't man. So they denied his humanity. Another group, Ebionism, denied his deity, but he's human. Arianism, which is still going around today in both the Mormon church and also the Jehovah Witnesses, is denying the deity. He's human, he's important, but he's not God. We have Apollinarianism, which really denies the humanity. It's kind of, uh, they say that he's deity, but not fully human. In fact, one of the, one of the philosophies said that there was this man named Jesus whom the divine Jesus came upon him until the time of the cross, and then the divine Jesus left this man to die on the cross for himself. Nestorianism, well, they say that, that he's two persons. No, he's only one person. They say he's two. And Eutychianism said that he's, well, he's 50-50. He's not fully God and fully man. He is 50-50. He's part God and part man. We read some definitions, and I'll read one right now. Charles Ryrie writes, Christ incarnate coming in the flesh. 
means being full deity and perfect humanity united. Those two natures united without mixture. Change, division, or separation in one person forever. And you say, well, why are we doing this and why are we doing this now? Well, it makes very good sense to me because when we look at the babe in the manger, this is who he is, the God-man. We looked at his deity last week in all of the prophecies. Now, this week I want to look at his humanity, and we will look at his prophecies, but we'll look at a few other things. In fact, we're going to look at the prophecies of the God-man, the birth of the God-man, the growth of the God-man, humanity of the God-man, perfection of the God-man, and the purpose of the God-man. All in 60 minutes. If not, we'll meet tomorrow. Tomorrow morning, we'll continue it. Just kidding. All right, well, let me just talk a little bit and have you look with me at these prophecies. Of these verses that we hear in every children's program, these are the, the verses from the Old Testament that talk about Jesus and his birth. Would you turn to Micah chapter 5, verse 2? And in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, it's going to talk about the birth of Christ. In fact, all of these are going to talk about the birth of Christ, but they also talk about the deity of Jesus Christ. So you've got both. So why should we discuss it? Why should we teach it? Because that's what the Bible teaches. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2, it says, But for as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you... One will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. So he is born, but he had existed for all eternity. How do you understand that? As the Son of God, God the Son, he has always existed. And now he has added humanity at the birth. And if we're talking about birth, if all of these are mentioning the birth of Christ, it's obviously arguing for his humanity. As we take a look at these things, it's not like God just put him on the earth, his humanity on the earth. Uh, he went through the normal uh, birthing process, nine months that, that Mary carried him. So this all argues for his humanity. He wasn't hatched in an egg or anything like that, but normal birthing process to show that he was human in every way, except he did not sin. Now, Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, Isaiah 9, 6, you know it probably by heart. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. I think there is a distinction made there. First of all, a child will be born to us, talking about the birth of Christ, but a son will be given. How? Why doesn't it say a son be born? Because the eternal son of God cannot be born. He's always existed, but he can be given. And so we see the God-man. And then finally, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Well, it says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child, that's a birth, and bear a son, that's a birth, 
and she will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. But what if we had to argue the humanity of Christ? What if we had to say, well, okay, we see some people believe that he's deity, but they don't believe that he's human. He has to be human in order that he could die for humans. He didn't become an angel to die for angels. He became a man to die for mankind. Well, let's talk about some of these things then. Let's talk about the birth of the God-man. Kind of interesting, uh, I've mentioned these things before in all of the Christmas sermons that I've ever given, and I go back through them, and I try not to give the same sermon as before, hence the theanthropic birth. But I want to say, I want to talk for a moment about the common pregnancy that Mary had, the common birthing process that Jesus had in the womb of his mother. Now, I'm not talking about the conception. We know that is miraculous. Through a virgin, by the power of the Holy Spirit who overshadowed her, Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit. But at that point, once he was conceived, what kind of pregnancy did she have? The same kind that y'all have. The same one, three trimesters with everything. And it's going to come to a full term. She has to come to a full term. And I want to look at these things and we'll, we'll just see this. We'll just see the commonality of this pregnancy. But what else is going on in the womb of Mary is a normal full-term pregnancy, as if I need to tell you this, especially the women, but a normal full-term pregnancy is 40 weeks or so, and it can range from 37 to 42. It's divided into three lovely trimesters. Each trimester lasts between 12 and 14 weeks, or about three months, and comes with its own specific hormonal and physiological changes for the mother. But during that time, the baby develops weekly within the three trimesters. In the first trimester, the baby's head begins to be formed. Even the nose, elbows, toes, and fingers, even fingernails in the first trimester are beginning to develop. Not fully develop, but you can recognize those through imagery. The second trimester is the baby's gender becomes clear in its development. Uh, its nose um, uh, its eyes, its ears, and its organs begin to develop. By the way, it is a baby. It is a baby. And at the second trimester, the baby can suck its own thumb. And the baby can begin to recognize the mother's voice. The third trimester... Well, now the eyes are fully developed and they're partially open. The hair is there and it's growing as about as much as it's going to be. And isn't that interesting? Some children just come out with a full head of hair. Some come out with no hair. Some lose their hair. Um, just very interesting. Weight. There's weight gain. There's size. Uh, by the way, my mother told me that she didn't want to eat a lot. While she was pregnant, she didn't want to have to deliver a big baby. So she did not eat a lot. She did not show very much. And I often say the reason why I like to eat so much is because my mom starved me for nine months. 
The vital organs at this time are fully developed. And guess what else? There's movement, kicking, turning, stretching. This also occurs in, in the womb of Mary with the development of the Lord Jesus Christ who is fully human, as much human as anyone else is human, except that he does not share in our sin nature. Well, I want to go through a timetable, if you will. As I was studying this week, I just became enamored with this. I, I, I wanted to see when we think Mary conceived. We, want to, uh, we know about Elizabeth, and she was pregnant before six months, and, and then Mary. And I, I wanted to go through this just to show how normal this is, how normal Jesus' birth process was. Well, the first thing we're going to start with is Elizabeth. The events really in the account of the birth of Jesus actually begin with Elizabeth. And I'd like you to turn to Luke chapter 1. We'll be in Luke chapter 1 for quite a while. So Luke chapter 1. And I want to read verses 24 through 27. And it says, After these days, Elizabeth, his wife, that's Zacharias' wife, the priest, became pregnant. She was in her old age. And so this is also a, a supernatural birth, if you will, opening the womb uh, at her old age, but not as great a birth as the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And she kept herself in seclusion for five months. Okay, so she's in her second trimester, saying, this is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked down with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. She was barren. And then verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the sixth month of what? The sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David and the virgin's name was Mary. So that's the beginning of it. And so there's going to be this uh, interaction between Mary and Elizabeth and it will also have to do with the timetable of both of their pregnancies. Now, drop down, if you would, to Luke 131. Now, I, I know I don't need to say this, but for the sake of the timetable, I want to show you that it says that in the sixth month of Elizabeth, an angel came to Mary, who was a virgin, and she, was not con she did not conceive at that moment, that exact moment, because in verse 31, look at what the angel says to her. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. So she hadn't conceived at that point, but the angel is telling her that she will conceive and that she will bear a son. All of those are very normal phrases that happen every day, and it's going to happen to the Virgin Mary in the birthing process of the Lord Jesus Christ. When she hears of this, she also hears that Elizabeth, her relative, is also pregnant, who 
was in her old age, and it's a miracle, and she decides to go visit. This is going to be a good visit. She wants to help. She wants to see what happened to Elizabeth, and now perhaps she was going to talk to Elizabeth about this angel coming to her, telling her that she was going to conceive, and so this is what we find. Drop down to verse 36, and I know I'm skipping over a lot of the verses that we use for the normal Christmas sermon, but verse 36, the angel said, and behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. At this, and after all that the angel told her, verse 39, it says, now at this time, Mary arose and went in a hurry to the hill country to a city of Judah. She wanted to go visit Elizabeth, so she was in a hurry to do this. Um, again, probably comfort to Elizabeth and probably comfort for herself. Now, at this point, I just want to talk about this. So she, she is in Nazareth, she being Mary. Elizabeth is somewhere near Jerusalem. Uh, it says in the hill country. Well, it would have to be near Jerusalem because Zacharias is a priest. And it says in scripture that they had a, there in, in, in the beginning of Luke, it says that uh, the priests had to go and serve uh, two weeks every year. So you had to be somewhat close to Jerusalem to fulfill your duty. And of course, that's where he was in the temple fulfilling his duty when the angel came to him and announced the birth of John the Baptist. Well, Mary is going to go from Nazareth to some surrounding area in Jerusalem. Now, how long would that take? Well, it depends on what route she took. Certainly not a straight line as the crow flies, but it's approximately 80 miles. And someone has once said that the average pace for the average human is 2.5 miles an hour. Now, some can go faster than that, but anyway, that's the average, and she was younger. Uh, she may have come on a donkey, but someone has wisely pointed out, uh, it's not like you go any faster on a donkey. <laughs> you, it's less work. For you, more for the donkey, but not for you. And since she was very young, it's probably, she probably walked. Now, we don't know what time she left. I mean, we don't know uh, what day, but, but just the walking time, if it was going to be for eight hours straight, which it may not have been, as soon as she could have arrived was four days. So depending on when she left, she said she was in a hurry or it said she was in a hurry. She was going to go. Maybe it took a, a couple days to get everything uh, situated so she could go. Maybe she didn't do the full eight hours, uh, you know, whatever. So, so maybe it took a, a, a week, maybe two weeks for her to get there. Now, this is important because one of the questions we're going to ask is, well, when did she conceive? Well, it wasn't before she left. We believe it was some time before she entered the house of Elizabeth. Now, as we, we take a look at this, let's, let's go to Luke chapter, 40, uh, chapter 1, verse 41. And we're going to read down to verse 43 because I believe that by the time she enters the house, 
from the words and the words and the reaction of Elizabeth, it is known that she that she being Mary has already conceived. Verse 41, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, she had entered the house. First of all, the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, which means the things that she's about to say are under the influence and guidance of the Holy Spirit, so they're true. And she cried out with a loud voice, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? Well, there's a lot of theological truth there, but I'm on the most practical level at the moment, and I'm just looking at a time frame of the birthing process. Well, first of all, we see that the baby leaped for joy. And I believe that the baby was leaping for joy at the presence of the Messiah who was in the womb of Mary. That's what one commentator said. This expression is not in praise of Mary. We know that there are some who would elevate Mary, that even she's a co-redemptress. If you're going to be saved, you have to be saved through Christ and Mary, but that's not true. We don't elevate Mary to that. Biblically, we know she was a sinner, just as any other sinner. But her Savior was in her womb. That's incredible. And what a, what a blessed woman to be chosen to, to bear the Messiah. It says, the expression is not in praise of Mary, but in praise of the child whom she bore. It was a profound expression of Elizabeth's confidence that Mary's child would be the long-hoped-for Messiah the one whom even David called Lord. Well, the next thing that we see that she says in verse 42, she said, blessed is the fruit of your womb. She doesn't say, blessed will be your womb, which will have fruit. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. And this is a phrase referring to being pregnant. That's what this means. In fact, uh, we, we don't have to turn there, but if you remember... When Rachel was barren and did not give any children to Jacob, there was a little bit of discussion, and he says, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Well, God, through the Holy Spirit, has given Mary, by this time, the fruit of the womb. This phrase was a designation of the embryo, that Mary bears in her womb, Meyer says. And then in verse 43, she says, Elizabeth says, and how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? She doesn't say the mother to be. She says that the mother of my Lord, they knew who he was, would come to me. And so with the spirit of prophecy, being, being filled with the Holy Spirit, Elizabeth knew that the Messiah was conceived and that Mary was the mother of her Lord, John Gill. So apparently she conceived at some point from the time the angel told her to the time she got to Elizabeth's house in Jerusalem. Now, Let's get into the time frame. 
Look at verse 56. Drop down to verse 56. It says, and Mary stayed with her about three months and then returned home. All right, so now we're getting into trimesters. Now we're getting into things. First of all, Mary stayed about three months. When she first went, Elizabeth was six months. That equals nine months. And she probably stayed to deliver, help deliver John the Baptist. But it's three months now. And at three months, what starts to happen? You start to show. They, some people call that the baby bump. Typically, Healthline writes, <laughs> and I'm sure it varies. Typically, though, you won't have a baby bump in your first trimester, especially if it's your first pregnancy. You'll likely notice the first signs of a bump early in the second trimester between weeks 12 and 16. Maybe, maybe not. I'm not, gonna, I'm not arguing that point, but it's three months. Well, what makes that so interesting is she's going to go back to Nazareth. And the statement will be made, and she was found with child. How? Was she going around telling everybody? She didn't need to. It was three months or later now for her, and she was starting to show. Now, at this point, we're still seeing, yes, it was, an, it was a miracle for the conception, but everything else is going as commonly uh, brought about in every woman who is pregnant. And now she's in the beginning of the second trimester, if you will, or at the very end of the first one. She's, so she's already through that. Now, it doesn't go and tell us whether she had morning sickness or not. I'm sure she did. I'm sure she did. This, this is a completely human birthing process. Jesus is human. And everything that goes on in the womb I'm sure happened to him. And let's turn to Matthew chapter 1, because here is where Joseph finds out that she is pregnant by this time. So Matthew chapter 1, I want to read verses 18 through 20. Now the birth, again, if there's a birth, he's human. He's as fully human as anyone else is human, except without sin. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And that word for found in the Greek is eurisco. We get our English word eureka, which means the discovery Maybe you were looking for it, maybe you weren't looking for it, but Eureka, we found it. She was beginning to show. She was found and noticed by everyone. And of course, at this point, we talked about this before, there's all of these, uh, these false statements that are made that they accused her of having an affair with one of the Roman soldiers and, and all of that. Um, but you know what? If that were the case, I think Joseph would have put her away. But he doesn't. Why? Here's why. From the scriptures, we read this, verse 19. 
And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, what a good man. That would be the quality of goodness. He was a good man. Planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your child, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And so he obeys and does not put her away. Even though it was found out, she was beginning to show that she was with child. A very, very common phrase for that time. And it means that there is a baby in the womb, a human being. Now, there's detail, and a lot of detail, but there's a lot of detail that isn't mentioned. At this point, we really don't read a whole lot further about Mary and her pregnancy until Luke chapter 2, where we find out she has gone full term. So she was three or four months. At, by this time, it was found out, and it was another uh, six or four months she comes to full term. Let's go to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, verse 4 through 7. It says, Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. They were asked to register because wonderful taxes had to be collected. Verse 5, in order to register along with Mary, she was registering in Bethlehem because she's from the line of David, as was Joseph, who was engaged to him and was with child. So we see that. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in clothes and laid him in the manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, outside of the fact that there was no room for them in the inn, outside the fact that it was probably an, either a spare room somewhere or more likely a cave where the animals were, and in the manger, which was an animal trough, other than that, everything here is normal, common. She is with child, and she is full term. Now, the word completed here says her days were completed. Um, I'm sure you ladies understand exactly. You know, the men are listening. The ladies are feeling right about now. <laughs> the word in Greek is pimplemi, and it means to fill full completely. The womb of the mother is filled completely. And sometimes when you see pregnant ladies, you're thinking, how could she ever get bigger than that? You know? Well, what's interesting is if you look up this word, and, and here's where the men will feel it, okay? If, if, you, if you look up this word in other references in Luke, here's where this word is used. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them because they had caught fish and they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. The idea is, is that both boats were filled to the max with fish. Well, 
not saying that that's what was in the womb of Mary, but a baby was. Jesus come full term, full development, fully human, full of all of that. Full term, nine months or thereabouts. It says that she gave birth. Doesn't say how long, doesn't say whether it was easy or whether it was difficult. That seems to be the question that ladies ask each other, you know. Uh, it seems to be the discussion that they tell each other. You get to know. Whether you ask or not, you get to know how easy it was. Or you could be a man who works in the grocery store and a woman comes in and says, oh, we had our baby at the same time you had yours. Oh, I said, you, you, you knew my wife was in there? Yeah, I could hear her scream down the hall. Well, it doesn't say any of that, but we could assume that there could be that. It could be the screaming, the crying, the pain. It was a normal human birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son, which means she had not had relations with Joseph. She was a virgin. And then it says that she wrapped him in cloths, or some versions say swaddling clothes. That's just strips of cloth. There really isn't any clothes to put a baby in in, in those days at that time. So they wrapped them in clothes and cloth and to keep the baby warm. It's just normal, just common. And they laid him in a manger. Now that isn't common. That means an animal trough. He literally laid in an animal trough. Now this isn't any uh, thing really that was out of the ordinary. When I was over in Israel and I was in Nazareth, uh, we were there at Nazareth Village, and we were in the temple, uh, the, the temple that they had built, the synagogue, actually. Uh, they were telling us a story of, of well, the, the, one of the guides was telling us a story of her birth as a missionary over there in Israel. And they didn't have a whole lot. In fact, they were living with someone else, and she had her baby while there. They didn't have enough money for a crib, so she put her baby in one of the drawers. You, I mean, somewhere where they're going to be protected and I don't know if she pulled the drawer out or I don't know if she closed the baby in the drawer with a little bit of an opening. I don't know. Uh, you know, at that point, if you're in Nazareth and you're in a synagogue, that's the last thing you want to know. <laughs> well, she gave birth. And again, we find out that this has been a normal birthing process. He is human from the get-go. And you know, there are a lot of other details to show his humanness through scripture. We're gonna look at them. But what we see here is that from the very beginning, all of these prophecies talking about his birth means he's gonna be human from his birth so that he could eventually become a man, a savior, and die on the cross for our sins. Well, quickly... As much as I enjoyed that, I hope you did too, we want to move from there. We want to look at the growth of the God-man, and we're having an emphasis on man, his humanity. In Luke chapter 2, verse 21, when he was eight days old, and when eight days had passed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus. By the way, you remember what Jesus means? It's transliteration of Joshua, and Joshua means Jehovah saves, for he will save his people from their sins. So they named him that according to what the angel said, and then he was circumcised. So we see growth here, a normality. Then 
when he was over 40 days old, uh, after the days of Mary's purification, they had to complete what the law of Moses says, the dedication of the firstborn son. And so they went to the temple and they dedicated Jesus, her firstborn son. And then what happens? And then we see in verse 40, as it's talking about at this point, from infancy to childhood, the child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Of course he did. He was fully human. He became strong, stronger in his bones and muscles as they developed. What's interesting is that he increased in wisdom. Now, this is part of the mystery of the God-man, the theanthropic man, with the two natures, that at one moment he knew all things in his divine nature, and yet in his human nature he had to grow in wisdom. It's a mystery, but it's true. And then we have the situation when he was 12 years old and his parents accidentally forgot him. When they were looking for him, they finally found him in the temple, and he said, well, that's where I would have to be, uh, be about my father's business, my father's house. And by the way, he was 12 years old, and that was the first declaration that he knew at 12 years old, in his wisdom, human wisdom, he knew who he was when he called him his father's house. Well, they were kind of put out, and as they left, and he obeyed. I mean, he obeyed. He went with him. He wasn't disobedient. He, he did not sin. He couldn't have sinned and still be our Savior. And Luke 2 closes with this, 51 and 20, uh, 52. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he continued, continued in subjection to them. Okay, parents, underline this. Show your kids this verse. He continued in subjection to them, and his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. There's this growth. He's human. And then it goes silent. We don't read of anything. Because it's not so much the convincing of the humanity that's important. It's the convincing of the deity that's so necessary. And so John, the book of John, talks about the deity of Christ. So do the other books as well. Well, for a moment, let's just talk about his humanity quickly. We've talked about this before. We see that Jesus was hungry. Jesus was thirsty. That's, that's human. He was fatigued and slept. He exhibited compassion. He exhibited emotions. And he experienced testing. I almost said texting. He experienced testing. He was tested. And these are all things to prove his humanity. I just want to look at one of them. Turn with me, if you would, to Mark chapter 4, verse 38, that he was fatigued and slept. So this is when they're on the Sea of Galilee. Storm's coming up. Jesus is sleeping. Jesus himself was in the stern 
asleep on the cushion, and they woke him up and said to him, Teacher, do you not care? We are perishing. He got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still, and went back to sleeping. No, it doesn't say that. But he did that, and the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. Human, yes. Divine, yes. But I find it interesting that he was sleeping. Now, one of the reasons why he would be sleeping when the boat is tossing and turning and the wind and the storm and the waves is because as the perfect human being with no sin, there was nothing to keep him awake. Okay, so his sleep was not disturbed by guilt and shame and worry. But I really think it could be another reason that really points to his humanity and that, you know, when you look at the life of Jesus, he is very diligent. Not only is he diligent, but also he would sometimes pray all night and then minister in the morning. And when they're on the Sea of Galilee, this is a perfect time to catch up on some shut-eye. And I mean, if, if that's the case, he was tired, dead tired. And even a storm isn't waking this guy up. And, and you probably have seen people like that, kids like that. I mean, they are, you know, they're sound asleep. And when you wake them up, I mean, like, they have no clue where they're at. They, they're, but, but we see here that he was sound asleep. He was fatigued and tired. He was fatigued just like when he asked the Samaritan woman to give him a drink. He was tired there, and he was thirsty. He had all of these things. But the one thing that he didn't have was the sinful nature. And this is coming to a point. And the point is to proving that he was God, proving that he was human. We're going to prove now that he was without sin. And then that makes him the perfect mediator. That's the reason why the babe in the manger came. Let's look at the perfection of the God-man. Turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 1 again. By the way... It is interesting, we're spending a lot of time in Luke here, and as I was talking about the time frame of the ladies and the pregnancy, it was written by a doctor, Dr. Luke. Uh, of course he would record things like that. Um, and oftentimes he uses medical terms to describe these things. But he would be not only meticulous, but he would be very concerned about this. In fact, when we, we see... Uh, the book of Luke, we always say that the book of Luke was written to show his humanity. Well, in Luke chapter 1, verse 35, it says, The angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, this is before she conceived, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason the holy child, holy child, shall be called the Son of God. Gabriel announced that Jesus would be called the Son of God, not having a human father. But God would be his father, hence the Son of God. Since Mary would conceive through the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the child would be holy and without sin and without a sin nature. And so he was perfect and always perfect. Now, we do think of Adam. Adam was innocent in the beginning, but Adam messed up. He sinned and plunged the entire human race into sin and under the guilt of sin and passed on his sinful nature. Thank you, Adam. But the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the second Adam, 
came without sin, and he did not sin. Therefore, he gets to become our mediator, the God-man. But we also find in the New Testament, all of the apostles and the writers of, of uh, the New Testament, they, they claim Jesus was sinless. How about Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.21? He made him who knew no sin. He knew no sin. Now, he knew what sin was externally, but it never became internal. He never thought it. He never spoke it. He never acted on it. He made him who knew sin, knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. He took our sin for salvation. Peter writes, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. First John, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. The writer of Hebrew in, in chapter 4 writes, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Okay, so he had human weaknesses, but he didn't have the human weakness of sin, if you want to call that a weakness. He didn't have the sinful nature. But one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Jesus himself claimed to be without sin. In John 8, 29, Jesus said, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Always? If that came out of my lips or your lips, you would say to me, always, Daryl? You don't really mean always, right? Figure of speech. It was literal with the Lord Jesus Christ. Later on, he said, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Perfectly. He always pleased the Father. He did not sin, even when tempted by the devil in the wilderness. This teaches us this principle of atonement. The principle of atonement is set forth in Scripture as something or someone, something Innocent must die for someone guilty. You go back, and that's with the sacrifices of the lambs. We just talked about Passover in 2 Kings. And you have the idea that something innocent, a lamb without blemish for sin. Now, as Tim mentioned during our Lord's table, it only temporarily covered it. It didn't take sin away. But when Jesus came, John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so he was the innocent, blameless God-man, someone who died for sinners who are guilty in order to have atonement and forgiveness of sins. Peter says, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. He was perfect without sin so that he could be our mediator and die on the cross. And now we come to that is the purpose of the God-man. 
That is the purpose of the birth of the babe in the manger. That babe in the manger. No other. That babe. The theanthropic babe in the manger. Of all the things that show his humanity, his birthing process, his being born and growing, the things that he showed while he was human, all of that shows that he was human. But you know what else shows that he was human? He could die and did die. Final proof that he was human. Final proof that he had to be human so that he could die. Because God can't die. If God were to die, everything would die. There would be nothing in existence. So the God-man took on humanity so that he could die in our place. You talk about the gift and the understanding of the reason for the season, man, that is it. You'll never get a better gift than that. And I trust that everyone who is here, that you have trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, that you, along with all the rest of us, are sinners, and he died on the cross for our sins. And the moment that we trust him, take him as our Savior, faith alone in Christ alone, the moment that we embrace him as our Savior, Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for me and my sins. The moment you trust him, you are forgiven. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Proof of Christ's death. And so he did become human so that he could die. It says in Hebrews chapter 2, but we do see him, as talking about Jesus, who was made for a little while lower than the angels. In, in the chain of command, that's where we are. It's God, angels, and then man. So he was made a man, so for the time being, he was a little lower than angels, even though the angels worship him. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. That is salvation. Tasted death. Tasted condemnation. Tasted the wrath of God for your sins and my sins so that we could be forgiven. So he became human to die. And that made him the perfect mediator between a holy God and sinful man. And we've read it before, but I hope it, it seems to me the more I read it and put it in its context, it just means so much. But 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God and one mediator also between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Why did it say the God man there? Well, it didn't have to because he's called God in many other places. Why did it just focus on man? Because he had to become a man in order to die and have make atonement for our sins. And in Matthew, let's turn to Matthew chapter 1 for just a moment. I, I, I really love this verse. It if I sign a Christmas card, I will usually put this verse because it's what it's all about. And Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, it says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. It's talking about, he, it's talking about the, 
the birth of Jesus, and he hadn't even been born yet. And he's already given the purpose. He came to die for our sin. And then another favorite passage of mine in Luke, and you don't have to turn there, but, but when the angels went to the shepherd, shepherds, I love this. It says, but the angel said to them, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. Tomorrow, we should have great joy around the table because of the good news that Christ came which will be for all people, including us Gentiles. For today, in the city of David, there has been born common birth, supernatural conception, common normal everyday birth, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Talking, he had just been born. They're going to see him. He is the Savior. That little babe in the manger is the Savior. Who is the Christ? Meaning he's the Messiah, the awaited one, and he is Lord, even reference to his deity. And so the eternal Son of God, or God the Son, took on perfect and full humanity so that he could die and make atonement for sinful man. As the God-man then, he was in the truest sense, Emmanuel, God with us. And you could even say God for us so that he could be the savior of the world. Let me read this quote. The doctrine of the humanity of Christ is equally important as the doctrine of the deity of Christ. Jesus had to be a man if he was to represent fallen humanity. He wasn't fallen, but he was representing them. First John was written to dispel the doctrinal error that denies the truth of the humanity of Christ. If Jesus was not a real man, then the death on the cross was an illusion. He had to be a real man to die for humanity. The scriptures teach the true humanity of Jesus. However, they also show that he did not possess man's sinful, fallen nature. At Christmas time, now, tomorrow, let's worship the babe in the manger with our family. But let's worship him as Emmanuel, translated God with us. God among us and God who became one of us so that the God-man could save us from our sin. This is what Christmas is all about. Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Because, Lord, I don't know how else we would know these things, and we wouldn't. These things are too wonderful for us, Lord. But we still want them. And the fact that the eternal Son of God, who was also co-creator of all things, became a creature, a human being, so that he could die for human beings. Is it possible that you could love us that much, even though we're sinful? And it is. And so, Father, we pray 
not only for ourselves, but for our loved ones and those we know. That, Father, you would bring us not only to this knowledge, but a saving knowledge of who the Lord Jesus Christ is, who that babe in the manger was, no more, no less than the God-man who came to die on the cross for our sins. Hallelujah. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.